0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa. We're in the middle of July. This is the week of July 16th. Lots of things going on this summer. Most of them involve sunburn, if not suntan. Let's bring in the man who is cool as aloe vera, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going?
1: Uh, well, yeah, when I use SPF 100, which, okay, let's be honest here, is basically white house paint. It's a shirt
0: and a hat and a can.
1: Problem is, you know, there's this guy with a harpoon who keeps following me around. It's
0: like, no, no. <laughs> Call him Ishmael.
1: That's right. You, you've got the wrong white whale. Get out of here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, Jim, a couple of uh, uh, listener questions before we get started today. Let's do the first one. It's from Jaina, mm-hmm. who says, your podcast got me watching the Fairytale Weddings show. Now I need to know if they'll have weddings at Galaxy's Edge, and if so, do they charge extra to rent a droid or two? I love this. This was the conversation that we did uh, last year with the show before that, about the, the Fairy Tale Weddings uh, thing and all stuff Disney's doing around reality TV shows.
1: Well, it's funny that Jaina brings this up because yes, there was discussion about okay, we are gonna need some function room, some function spaces.
0: For the conventions that happen on Batu <laughs> Look, we were in Las Vegas last year. It didn't
1: work out. <laughs> it's pretty much the same business plan. It's the it's notion of one area that has already been potentially scoped out, but you can't scope out a park that isn't finished being constructed yet, but you, yeah. you can send representatives from the Disney weddings to Glendale to go to the cave, which remember is this sort of this amazing technology that Disney has where they can basically put you in a space. And what they did is they sort of walked the Disney Weddings representative through various spots around Batuu where they were like, let's look at the Grove where if you're at Disneyland, you come in from the Critter Countryside, you come through this pine forest and find this series of X-Wings. And wouldn't it be cool if the Star Wars fans could be married, surrounded by this squadron of X-Wings? And yes, they actually did talk about a droid being a ring bearer. A, these haven't officially been listed yet. B, the pushback from the parks was...
0: Unless you want to get married at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well,
1: you know, that's (laughs) it. That's it exactly. We're
0: we're, we're not going to have any time or space for any of this.
1: Yes. You know, I mean, just they were like, look, realistically, two years out. On the other hand, the people who do the Disney fairies show, or I mean, the Disney weddings, fairytale wedding show, were like, I guess they're already planning for season two, And they were really kind of hoping that at least as a finale for season two, when they shoot that season, they'd be able to get in there. But the pushback was, you know, it's it's like, you know, from a horticulture point of view and all of that, it's like, look, look, realistically, we're talking season three. So it is possible, but we are a while off on that one.
0: Speaking of a while off, uh, one of the things that I read from the fine folks over at WDW Magic who peruse construction permits and regulatory filings on a daily basis. Recent uh, construction permit Mm -hmm. indicated that the Star Wars Hotel construction will be wrapped up in 2020. Have you heard this? Remember, phase one. Oh, I missed this part. What uh, What does that mean?
1: As excited as Bob Chapik is about this idea, and Bob's talking about a Star Wars hotel for Tokyo, Bob's talking about a Star Wars hotel for Paris. Bob wants for Paris, after they do that conversion of the New York, New York hotel to the art of Marvel. Marble. Yeah. He wants yeah. that to be the very Nick, you know, their first really new hotel in what, decades? Yeah. And especially on the heels of what just happened with solo, there's kind of a, a little light tapping of the brakes, and the plan has always been with the Star Wars Hotel to start off with just a, a relatively small number of rooms, only four hundred but again that there was supposed to be space for two wings going off of the main building again or the main complex. each of these wings mm-hmm. would be for three hundred additional rooms so
0: so it could be up to a thousand
1: at full build out a thousand if they begin construction late this year you know the fact that they're talking about having this thing open for 2020 which again is what a surprise ahead of the 50th anniversary when's the last time you saw a disney hotel be able to get up out of the ground in get you a know, less than two
0: so my two concerns when i read that date were number one mm-hmm. even if you say it's you know december of 2020 we're 29 eight months away mm-hmm. from that that's a lot of time to build a hotel, fit it with technology, do a shakedown of it, and then open it up to the to paying guests. That's that's ambitious for any organization, well, not just Disney. And granted, they, I mean, they can they can throw money at it, but that seemed to me seemed, uh, seemed like a very ambitious. Well, date.
1: let's remember here though that one of the advantages they have with the Star Wars construction site, is that, if you remember, we were talking about the ramp that comes straight off of World Drive, the original entrance to, to Disney MGM off of World Drive, you know, going through the film yeah. strip. So I, as far from a site prep point of view, This is relatively easy compared to the the usual central Florida. Again, you have to spend the first three months persuading the Gators to, you know, fill out their change of address forms. They can really (laughs) hit the ground running with this particular chunk of real estate. The challenge... Is this link that Chapek has talked about? This seamless transportation system that will take guests from the hotel, which is again, remember the conceit is it's in low orbit over, you know, the planet of Batu. That'll take you straight down from the station to Black Spire Outpost. You're right, it's ambitious, but on the other hand, they really believe that this is the hit of hits. They want this one open, uh, you know, if anything, so they can then walk the, you know, the original land company executives and the, the Parisian
0: bankers over and go, look, we should do this now, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, I think that'd be phenomenal. Have you heard anything at all about um, how the gameplay is being developed for this? Cause that's gonna be just as much a difficult build as the actual construction of the physical property.
1: This is one of those situations where people literally working on top of one another hand in hand, got this this galaxy's edge that's being built in anaheim that will not have a hotel component but at the same time is dealing with super crazy levels of crowds in a weird sort of way they have some gameplay elements that they actually want to field test in anaheim six months out ahead of okay so that's again i think one of the reasons why i know we've said this in the past but it's really kind of crucial if you're a, a, a big-time theme park fan or you're a big-time Star Wars fan, to get to into Galaxy's Edge, the Anaheim version, as early as possible, because there's going to be stuff that they're going to try and go. eh, okay, the droid bit a guy. Okay, let's not do that
0: again. All right, that's what we're uh, uh, we're looking at. When, so uh, they're still they're still saying summer, right? Do you think there'll be previous like for Toy Story Land in Walt Disney World, the build went. Literally until the day before it opened, and, and, and if, as far as I know, it may there may be construction cranes still moving in at night <laughs> to finish up some stuff. But do you do you see previews happening for? I was talking with a
1: friend who works in, in PR for the Disneyland Resort, and he was telling me that they already have three days in May blocked out for the press event. But at the same time, it said we have them blocked out. Doesn't necessarily mean we're actually going to make that. But their notion is they want it open. You know, they want the press hoopla. Uh, so people will book their summer vacations. That's it, exactly. And by Memorial Day, this is open to the public and they're charging forward from that point. But for me, looking at what just happened with Toy Story Lite, I don't know if you, you saw the announcement just in the past three or four days about... The holiday lighting package that's, that's already been announced for Toy Story Land.
0: Yep, saw it, yeah.
1: Yeah, really, at this point, it's like it's open, and I'm sorry, but yes, we'll do our annual pass holder exclusive stuff in September, and there'll be this amazing lighting package.
0: <laughs> yeah, our. The pass holder pre- preview uh, for Toy Story Land will come in September, three months after it opens.
1: Yeah, what's so funny is that there are people, there are guests at Walt Disney World who are, of course, now in Toy Story Land who are looking over at Star Wars. And have you heard what the cast members have been told to say about that?
0: No, go ahead. It's
1: like, oh, well, you no, know, that's Andy's Star Wars playset. And yes, he's still setting it up. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. <laughs> that's another part of the backyard. Come back next year. He'll have that all set up. I hear it's really cool.
0: Oh, that's funny. Th- that is funny. Speaking of uh, Toy Story Land, last uh, thing. So we've um, we've been getting uh, reader surveys for the new attractions. I'll give you a rundown of how these things are being rated so far. So Slinky Dog Dash, preschoolers giving it four and a half stars. Grade schoolers, teens giving it five stars. Also seniors giving it five stars. But young adults in over 30s, four and a half stars as well. Hmm. This looks like it's a hit. This is as popular as uh, Toy Story Mania.
1: Have you been hearing about alien swirling saucers?
0: We have. So the older you get, the less you like it. Preschoolers give it four and a half stars, grade schoolers and teens, four stars, uh, young adults, three and a half, over 30s, three and a half, and seniors, three. I expect those numbers to go down ever so slightly. I that. because you got some of those uh, surveys are from people who are seeing it for the first time. So I, the numbers will probably drop a little bit, but. Uh, but overall, really good start for Slinky Dog Dash. Pretty much what I expected for Alien Swirling Saucers.
1: Well, I don't know if you,
0: you've heard about the floor treatment issues they're having with, with Alien Swirling Saucers. Oh, it was, it was evident when I was there. I, I forgot to tell you about this. Mm. So I'm, I'm going through Alien Swirling Saucers during the, the preview event, and I noticed that the floor is blue. It's like a blue, plasticky, mat type thing. But you can tell it had been patched dozens of times because the paint, the blue paint that they applied over the patches wasn't exactly the same blue color as the original floor. And I mean, heck it could have been wet (laughs) again as far as, as far as, but, uh, but the, and they applied it with a brush because it was each of the patches were sort of rectangular brushstrokes. Anyone who's ever patched a wall last minute before they moved out of an apartment or whatever knows what I'm talking about here. But those, patches mm-hmm. were all over the floor
1: something was up yeah this seems to be another dumbo situation Do you remember how when new Fantasyland land was opening up and evidently they, they were like a millimeter off on dumbo somebody had not measured correctly and they they were rubbing issues and there were scarring issues and that sort of thing evidently they were good they trying to figure out whether or not it was the way the, the the ride mechanism was loaded into the building or if the concrete pour was wrong by a couple of millimeters they are having scraping issues problem is when you open and you really if you factor in toy story midway mania with the back door it's okay so you have three rides but let's be realistic this is a land that opened with two brand new rides and you now have you're having technical issues with one of your two brand new rides
0: oh is that what it was yeah okay so when, so when I saw the paint patches yep. it was on the outside of the path that the ride vehicles would take but yeah you're right it's it's like places where if you're doing a figure eight it's places where the outside of the ride vehicle might touch or rub the plastic floor yeah oh and that's what it was I thought it was uh, just People walking, but you're saying it's the, oh, it's the right Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what they need, Jim? What? Rubber, <laughs> rubber baby buggy bumpers. <laughs> Let's all say it together, kids. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. There we go. That's what they need. There we go. Right. I
1: guess the thing that makes me a little crazy about this is, this is Mater's Junkyard Jamboree. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's under a cover and it features different characters and that sort of, but this is Major's Junkyard Jamboree. So the attraction has been successfully built on the other side of the country and it doesn't have yep. this issue. And why is it that, you know, when you've built something, you can't build it again without there being an issue?
0: Yes, eh. they'll figure it out. They I will, mean it's, they yeah, will. You know. Yeah, they'll figure it out. That, that's a minor thing. All right, Jim, we have uh, one more quick question and then we'll uh, we'll get into the main segment of our so- show. hmm This is from Vince, who writes, "Uh, my family and I just booked our trip to Disney World for this winter, staying at Pop Century. Anything we should keep in mind or no? Also, the gondola system sounds interesting, but why did they choose a whole new transportation mode rather than just expanding the monorail? So two questions there. Let me start with the first one. Anything you should keep in mind Uh, at Pop Century? uh, Um, Yes, all of the rooms available now at Pop Century have been remodeled. The last couple of buildings in the 50s area are currently being remodeled, but obviously you can't stay in them. So, Vince, uh, any room that you get now at Pop Century will be refurbished. There's no need to ask for a remodeled room. The gondolas actually is kind of an interesting question, you know, why gondolas or monorails. It probably comes down to cost, wouldn't you say so, Jim?
1: Yeah, if we're throwing, you know, back to Walt's view of what a Disney resort should be like. You know, Tomorrowland '67, a world on the move. So it's like, mm-hmm. monorails are cool. And don't get me wrong, what was it, '75, '76? You know, when they they were showing those initial models for the shopping village, where mm-hmm. you had the monorail system that would run people over to the shopping village, and then yep. there was the secondary people mover system that was supposed to allow you to then move to the other components, the industrial park, the club there's still the part of me that wishes that Disney and, and Siemens could have come to some sort of re- agreement. Because again, remember, they wanted to use Disney uh, to showcase yeah. their new monorail system. And for some reason, Disney just
0: would not come to the table. So I think it's cost. So I'll let everybody pause here and bring up Google Maps. You can uh, click on any two points on Google Maps and measure the distance between them. It's going to be useful for what I'm about to say. So click on an area around Walt Disney World, right-click and then say, uh, measure distance, and then click another point in Google Maps, you'll be able to measure the distance. So here's the thing. The current gondola path between Pop, Epcot, the studios, Caribbean Beach, everything, all that is about two miles in length, right? Mm Do you remember in the mid-1980s, Disney said it would cost around $10 million to build a mile of monorail track. This is when they were looking at expanding it to the studios. Yeah. So that $10 million in 1980s money is $22.5 million per mile today. Mm -hmm. So the gondola project would cost $45 million if it was monorails instead. That's why Disney's not, not building monorails, gym Right there, I mean, forty-five million dollars is even more money than, than Disney's collecting this year on parking fees. Mm-hmm. So well, let's not get crazy, right? They're not going to do it.
1: I was just over at Box Office Mojo looking at how much money the Disney Company has made off of Infinity War. Mm-hmm. It's two billion forty million dollars. All right, so yeah, it,
0: you know, just take. Can you guys take like five minutes of what you made off of from, from Infinity War? And buy us a monorail. Yeah, you know.
1: Come come on.
0: Here's the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. If you look at how Disney would want to expand this, again, looking at Google Maps, I don't think an expansion is going to be this point-to-point system like the current bus routes. Mm -hmm. So like the current bus routes, if you're at All Stars, for example, there's a point-to-point system that takes you to the Magic Kingdom or to Epcot or the Studios, right? I don't think the gondola would be that. It would be almost like, well, you definitely have to go through something else first. So it would almost be like, an aerial subway in that respect so if you bring up google maps if you look at how coronado springs is situated coronado springs probably wouldn't connect to the studios because in order to go from the studio to get to the studios you would almost have to cross over half the park like you'd you'd have to go from coronado springs between Rock and Roller Coaster and, and Beauty and the Beast and the entrance to the park to get there. And I don't think Disney is going to fly a gondola o- directly over the studios. Now, you could, you could dogleg it mm-hmm. too, right? I mean, you could always dogleg Coronado Springs, like to, I don't know, somewhere along East Buena Vista drive and then in. But the smarter thing to do is it's a direct shot from Coronado Springs to the International Gateway. And so that's what they would probably do. So if you wanted to get to the studios uh, from the gondola for Coronado Springs, you could go Coronado to Epcot, to Caribbean Beach, to Riviera, to MGM. And then that's complicated. But if you're looking at the westward expansion, the west side of World Drive, you know what makes the most sense as a hub? What? Blizzard Beach. So so here's here's my idea. Here's my idea. You put a gondola stop in the middle of the All-Star Resorts, like Reddit Music, maybe slightly above it. It's a straight shot up to Blizzard Beach. Then you could go off to the west to Animal Kingdom Park. You could go directly north to Coronado Springs, and you could go directly east to the studios. And from there, you have access to the rest of the network.
1: When Joe Cicero was originally working on the Blizzard Beach project, you have to understand that where Coronado Springs now sits, was going to be the Disney Winter Wonderland Hotel. Mm-hmm. You know how the ski lift that will take you to the top of the, the flume? Summer Plummet, yeah. Summer the, yeah, the ski lift, yeah. Yeah, they, the original plan was the ski lift would take you from the hotel lobby across Buena Vista Drive
0: oh my into. God. Uh, <laughs> get I was I was on that ski lift. I got on it for the first time like a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I was terrified. I don't like heights. I don't like that thing. It was like, well, I'm going to f- plummet to my death now. That'll be fine. And then my body will just slide down the slide. Well, there we go. You know,
1: and and lovingly (laughs) preserved by
0: by the cool melting water of the the summit
1: plummet. So there you go. It all worked out.
0: So I have this. I'm going to have this fear when I'm on the gondola, too, which is going to freak me out. Did I ever tell you the story of me on the Royal Caribbean cruise where they've got the giant robot arm? Did I tell you the story? No. Okay, so this is my this is my fear of heights. Mm-hmm. So Laurel and I are on the Royal Caribbean uh, cruise. I think we're on the Anthem of the Seas. And you know they've got, in all the Royal Caribbean commercials, they've got this giant glass dome that's connected to a robot arm that swings around the ship. Like it'll go up 200 feet in the air and swing around the ship and give you unparalleled views of everything. Okay. Laurel wants to go on it, so I go on it with her. So it's me, Laurel, this kid, his parents, and then this old lady who's on the cruise with us. we all get in the in the arm it starts going up and i'm afraid of heights and as soon as this thing starts moving i can feel my toes through my shoes trying to grab on the bottom of the steel uh barrier because i mean it's once you're up you're up it's like it's like being launched into space Mm -hmm. right you just you see the horizon fade away Mm -hmm. and the ship is moving too so you're swaying side to side because you're on a giant arm that's basically extending out way above the ship and it's amplifying the ship's movements. The woman, the old woman that was with every two, clearly not a fan of heights. I think she might have been related to the kid. So we're hugging each other, looking in the middle of the, directly in the middle of the cube, like like not getting anywhere near the edges. We're holding each other and looking straight down at our feet, saying, "Baby, it's gonna be okay. We're gonna get through this together." You know, like, like, rolls off the side. But the funniest thing was Jim, mm-hmm. the kid. The kid in this cabin with us mm-hmm. decided for whatever reason that he was going to fling himself against the windows <sighs> to show his parents what he could do. So he's like jumping on the windows like, look what I'm doing. Boing, boing. And it's, first of all, it's rattling the cage mm-hmm. and, that's, that I'm wearing, and that's, that's bothering me. But I'm muttering to this lady, this, this kid's going to fall out the window. This window's going to crack. And the last words is gonna, he's going to hear are me screaming, that's what you get. <laughs> right? <laughs> 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 like literally the last words. <laughs> so he he's bouncing around this thing. This woman and I are holding each other. Laurel, we're like, maybe it's be all right. Laurel is looking out, like, these views are magnificent. I'm like, yeah, I can see my shoes really well from right here. <laughs> this is great. The whole thing was over in three minutes. Never again, Jim. Never again. The kid, the views, the swinging, it was, I needed a drink after that. It was terrifying. And my fear is, I'm gonna get on these gondolas, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to be with the same kid. The same kid's <laughs> going to find me. And he's going to be like, he's going to run from one side to the other. Gondola's going, be <laughs> going to be swinging. I'm going to be like, this kid's going to fall out. It's the last words you're going to hear is, "Wow, got what you deserved. Anyway, that's my big gondola fear. But this kid bouncing against the windows was like, this, this is going to be a YouTube video one day.
1: <laughs> well, and remember, folks, for your copies of Len Testa's parenting tips, <laughs> yeah, I know
0: exactly. what that's what this? you get. Free. <laughs> I think it so. was actually even swearing. I was like, this damn kid's going to fall. I was so terrified. I was I was not even trying to be polite. Wow. It was like, I, I think I was actually saying, like, loud, this damn kid's going to fall out. And the last thing he's going to hear is this. <laughs> But one more uh, one more point about the, uh, the gondolas. If they did the Lens Western Hub mm-hmm. idea, it would connect 14,500 rooms to the network. So POP's got 2,800. Uh, Art of Animation's got about 2,000. All Stars is about 5,400. Caribbean Beach, 2,000, give or take. And Coronado, 2,300-ish with the expansion. It's about 14,500 rooms. That's half of the rooms on property.
1: I'd love to see this, but again, I want to see that first... Year of operation yeah, we'll see work, work, first. you know, between yeah. capacity issues and park close and thunderstorms and all of the joys of Central Florida. So let's just see how it works before we we start expanding its reach.
0: All right, let's take a quick break, Jim, and then we'll get back with the second half of our show where you're talking to us about Superboy. Yes, yes, and fell out of a gondolo and oddly enough, he flew. <laughs>
1: That's another <laughs> exactly, story.
0: the exact opposite of me. Definitely. All right, we'll be right back in a second. And we're back. All right, James, Superboy. This is the uh, the child of, I'm guessing, Superman and Supergirl?
1: Well, no, this is... I'm, I'm guessing. Superboy is actually the young Clark Kent during the Smallville years. But the Superboy that we're talking about today was the TV series. In fact, it was the first TV series to be produced at Disney MGM. It got produced someplace else later on, but that that's part of our story today. Everyone who's listened to the show knows kind of the history of Disney and Universal, which has not always been pleasant. And and to be honest, one of the reasons that it's not always been pleasant is that the MCA Recreation, those are the folks who handled parks and resorts for Universal or did back in the days. Uh, July 24th, 1981 announces, you know, the story that ran in the, the New York Times that MCA is going to be building its own entertainment complex in Florida, million Eastern copy of its highly successful Universal Studios tour in California. When this was originally announced, the project was going to cost $100 million. But because Universal now wanted a destination resort, much like Disney had, the price got upped by $70 million. So they were looking for financial partners. So four days... After this meeting, you know, the, or this story breaks in the, the, the New York Times, uh, oh, excuse me, five days, this is July 29th, 1981, we have Sidney Sheinberg, who at that time is the president and chief operating officer of, of MCA Universal. We have Jay Stein. He Jay's the guy in charge of recreational services, so again, this is the theme park guy. They sit down with then-Paramount chairman Barry Diller and his ex- executive vice president, Arthur Barron. And I can tell you where the meeting happened. It was in the Jack Webb building on the lot. And I can tell you that uh, Sid Scheinberg and, and Jay Stein then show Barry Dillard this elaborate slide-driven show that walks you know, the, the, these two Paramount executives through the theme park and what the destination of the kind of resort is going to be. But here's the thing, that if you talk with Jay Stein, he will tell you that there was somebody else in the room. And the somebody else in the room was Michael Eisner. Allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly, because again, the eyes to this day. insists no, it wasn't me. And on the other hand, Jay's like, look, I can tell you, you know, I. Is- <laughs> look, you stole me $12 for the lunch I bought you. What? <laughs> yeah, you know, did, but you know, just, you know, he asks very detailed questions and very, very interested in the presentation. So this is 1981 Paramount Universal opt not to collaborate on a theme park in Florida. They do, however, they get in bed and make a Star Trek adventure attraction for uh, the Universal Parks opened in 88 closed in 94. But long before that, Michael Eisner leaves Paramount in uh, September of 84. And by the fall of, of that same year, he's the new president of uh, Walt Disney Productions. And nine months later, here's Walt Disney Productions announcing that they're going to build a $300 million working television studio and a tour that will pair the Disney name with MGM UA. Huh. And the folks at Universal aren't happy about this largely because, again, they had spent more than a decade at this point developing these plans, and they're still really kind of sore at this point because I think we've talked about this on a previous show, how they came within, I want to say, $50,000 of – in 1976, SeaWorld was up for, for grabs, and Disney World had, Oh, yeah, yeah, you said,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think you've told this story before, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and they almost got into the Central Florida tourism market – in 76, and, and you of all people learned, if you think about that, they would have been in there more than six years ahead of the opening of, of Epcot, and it would have been a very, very, very different landscape now in Florida yeah. if they'd done that. But anyway, so the folks at universal just are fine good and they kind of bide their time but again one of the reasons that disney is even building this place in florida is not just to scoop universal but also remember isa was brought in the door and one of the very first things he was told to do is that you know disney has to start making more movies and there were only four sound Mm -hmm. stages on the the whole disney lot in burbank at that point so it's like let's build some um, stages in florida one of the reasons we want to build in Florida is it's a right-to-work state. There are no unions, and so your production dollar goes a lot further. And they do. They get right to work. I mean, they are in the middle of constructing Disney of Jam in February of 1988. They shoot the first actual TV movie on the grounds. It's, it's a sequel to Disney's 1984 hit Splash. It's called Splash 2. It's worth going to look at now, Len, because it's the very first thing that's shot on Residential Street, and I swear to God. I don't even remember this movie coming out. Oh, well, this is the thing. It didn't, it was a TV movie. It ran as two episodes of the Disney Sunday night movie TV show on ABC. It actually, episode one ran on May 1st, episode two ran on May 8th, but you can watch it now on YouTube. When you get to the scene that was shot on Residential Street, You can actually see the lions from where the sod was laid down five seconds before they did the shot. It's that lovely checkerboard pattern that says yeah, this stuff was on a cart two minutes ago. Disney builds not only the residential street area, but remember they did that backstage tour where you, you had those soundproof corridors that ran along the top of those soundstage one, two, and three where you were supposed to be able to look down at something that was being produced and Mm -hmm. When the Imagineers were initially working on this, they were talking about, oh, we'll shoot movies, and we'll shoot commercials, and Bob Allen, the guy who was running the park, was like, no, 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 we need a tv series we need something that shoots at least 13 episodes hopefully 26 episodes so that you know at least half of the year when people come to this theme park and walk down those soundproof corridors and look into the sound stages they see something being shot i mean we we promised them a working studio we've got to give them a working studio now what bob lucked into though was during this period of time In Hollywood, just the year previous, Star Trek The Next Generation had been launched, uh, September of 1987. Star Trek Next Gen was a syndicated hour-long drama. I mean, Paramount... Offered it to CBS, ABC, and NBC, and and none of them took it. So they they opted to syndicate it. It turned out to be a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Each episode cost a million three to produce. Wow! You roll that out over twenty six episodes, you're looking at thirty three point eight million per season. But on the other hand, Paramount was able to to reach out to ninety percent of the country, get this in you know this show in the major markets, airing on local affiliates. And they were able to make every year $90 million off of advertising revenue. So every season of the seven years that Star Trek ran, they were making $55 million, let alone the money from licensing, let alone the money from selling the, the then the videos and eventually the DVDs, Blu-rays, and the digital downloads. And everybody in the business noticed this, and it was like, okay, I want in on that. So by the time 1988 rolls around, there's a Friday the 13th syndicated television series in production. There's a War of the Worlds syndicated series in production. Freddy's Nightmares, a reboot of of Twilight Zone. And that brings us to the Sulkin family, uh, who back in 73 were smart enough to buy the film rights to Superman from DC Entertainment. Wow. Yeah. First film out, the original Superman with Christopher Reeves, December of 78, a budget of $55 million. They make $300 million worldwide. It's a smash hit. So, you know, it's like, all right, we made the right call. And so they put the sequel out in June of 81. Keep the budget about the same size, $54 million, only this time, box office is $190 million. It's fallen off by more than the third from the first film. So it's like, okay, all right, we maybe need the jig of the formula a little bit. July of 1983, they released Superman 3, which maybe not the smartest choice. They got Richard Pryor. They team Richard Pryor with with Christopher, even make it more of a a comedy adventure, and it
0: doesn't sound good.
1: Well, it, and it didn't work out all that well for them. They crept in the budget to 39 million. They only sold 80 million dollars worth of tickets worldwide, and Sulkins are like, okay, let's do something different.
0: They've done three Superman movies in five
1: years. Yep and what they opt to do now is they well we got the rights when we got superman we got the rights to supergirl let's try that that was a disaster 35 million dollar budget for the movie only sold 14 million dollars worth of tickets worldwide
0: so that's four movies in six years yeah
1: and then they turn around and they try to do another superman movie only this time they actually farmed the rights out to another studio, not Warner Brothers, but Canon. And this, this one only has a budget of $17 million, so <laughs> and it only makes 36 And so they're like, all right, we have to do something different. And again, this is eighty-seven, June of 87, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace comes out. And September of that year, Star Trek debuts. And it's like, whoa, there's money to make in television with these characters. And it's like... Okay, and remember, there had been the George Reeves Adventures of Superman television, which actually was
0: also a syndicated series. Kellogg's produced it. I remember watching that in the 70s and 80s yep. as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that was in syndication for, what, 20, 25 years at least. It's probably still on now. Yeah, I, and that was the thinking of the Sulicans. It's
1: like, wow, let's do that again. So they announced in February of 88 they're going to do this, and Disney... Faster than the speeding bullet. Remember February, they're shooting splash two on the recently completed residential lot. They see in the trades, the Salkins are doing the Superboy TV series. They race to meet with these guys and go, look, we're building this new state of the thing in Florida. Oh, it's going to be perfect. Production dollar will go that much further. Yeah, yeah. and Because of non-union labor. So June of, of 88, you know, here's Disney getting to announce that we have landed a TV series, the first to be shot in Central Florida. It's going to be 26 episodes. Star Trek, $1.3 million an
0: episode. Superboy, $300,000. So we're going to have guests holding cameras as they walk by.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. If you watch this first season of the show now, which, by the way, again, you can head over to YouTube right now and catch a number of the episodes. It really looks like it was shot by a not very talented high school AV team. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of experienced people. And the funniest thing, when the show debuts... The first set of ratings that, that come out, it does great in every market around the country except Central Florida. And the belief was that, that given between the on-location work that was done at Central Florida University and Mount Dora and Sanford, thinking was that, well, they saw how bad it was when it was being shot. So it's
0: like... <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've already seen all of
1: it. Yeah, they, they're not tuning it in. So, but here's the thing who is turning, tuning in, Universal. Oh. And it's one of these things where it's like they're looking at, at how poor these things, get, get. these episodes look, and and they reach out very quietly to the the Sulkin family. And who, by the way, you know, that it's done well enough in the ratings that by uh, April 20th, 1989, the show's been renewed for a second season. And, and remember, April of 1989, MGM is just getting ready to open. And... Yeah. And so here's Bob Allen. He's thrilled because the show that's been shot at his theme park, as it's being built, has just been renewed. Which means this inaugural summer, when the entire world's going to come see Disney MGM and, and troop through those those soundproof corridors and those three sound stages, they're going to be able to look down on Superboy being made, and it's a show that these people can see at home, and it's going to legitimize the studio, and and they're thrilled. So the. Just to sort of nail home this, the studio opens May 1st, 1989. Two weeks later, there's a Super Burr episode, which, by the way, folks, you have to go over to YouTube to check out. It's called Hollywood it is this valentine to disney hollywood studios it it was shot i mean i swear to god you can the paint has not dried on the chinese theater or on hollywood boulevard the the, the park never looked this good and again the the reason was nobody had been in it yet you know so they, they shot this amazing episode of superboy going back to hollywood of 1939 so everyone's thrilled. The park is opened, and they, they, the show's been renewed for a second season. And But, but what happens? In June ninth, 1989, Universal announced, hey, you know that Super Bowl show? They're going to start shooting it at, at Universal Studios Florida. And and not only that, we signed a three-year contract with the Salkine. So if if this show gets renewed through its fourth season, and by the way, it did, The place you you have to go if you want to go see Suburbo being shot is is Universal. And it just, you come to our meeting, you steal our ideas, we're going to be lying in wait for you, and then Universal did. The show, when it was shot at Universal, production value did pick up, it did look better, but it was still shot in Florida, still a right-to-work state, and I have this amazing story that Stan Berkowitz, he was a... Story editor and writer on the show, he did this interview recently about looking back on his time in Florida working on this syndicated TV series, and he said one of the problems the Sulkins faced was by plunking production of Superboy down in Orlando, Florida, back in in 88, 89. There was no Mm -hmm. experienced film community here. He said, one day, we're using a non-union crew, and the stunt guy comes up to me and said, I was the producer, it was really the head writer of the show at the time. And the stunt guy says, okay, Stan, what kind of glass do you want me to run this guy
0: through? <laughs> <laughs> this is just you could see, this is this is every every Florida conversation I've ever had, Jim. <laughs> Go ahead. Well no, but the thing is that look, if we use safety glass. You know,
1: it looks kind of crappy when it breaks, but it breaks no problem. But but if we use the other kind that looks like normal glass, well, it'll cut the guy. But you know, it, it'll break, but it'll probably
0: cut the guy. And it, it's, <laughs> I'm surprised nobody's using the line that art is suffering. <laughs> but just the art, thing, Stand, art if they're suffering. Yeah,
1: yeah. Stan's totally. like, you're asking me the writer? Well, why don't we use the one where he doesn't get cut? And Senkai goes, yeah, but the producer will get mad at me because the glass looks kind of phony beforehand. And so, sure enough, they shoot the shot with the rear glass and they end up with a trip to the hospital. But that's what you get with a non-union crew. And there were all (laughs) sorts of...
0: (laughs) You know, the writer's got like, you know, the nine and the one already dialed (laughs) in his phone and he's just... We're just waiting to hit the last one here. There
1: we go. Before the stunt gets done. in S-
0: action. There right. we go.
1: Get the back team. Anyway, Len, there were lots and lots of stories about the early days of MGM and Universal Theater that are like this. We will have to circle back <laughs> around to this at some point
0: and, and dig deeper here. Let's do it. That sounds, like, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, cool. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Miller, the De... Don't forget, we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go into iTunes and Stitcher or on the closest piece of glass that you can find and write us a review and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.